Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. You can easily tell that Nicole is an herbal teacher who's been doing this a long time. She shares so much with us in this interview from the wisdom of bioregional herbalism and ecology to the many gifts of juniper. Nicole is an award-winning practicing herbalist and a registered herbalist with the American Herbalist Guild. She has a background in botanical studies, plant conservation work, community activism, and herbal first aid clinics. She wrote the books Medicinal Plants of Texas and Herbcraft, the complete guide to 21st century holistic western herbalism. She lives between Seattle and Austin, supervising over 250 medicinal plants and themed gardens at Bastyr University, and is the founder and lead instructor at the Wildflower School of Botanical Medicine. She's best known for her work, Freeing Fire Cider. You can visit Nicole at wildflowerschool.com. Well, welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much, Rosalie. It's great to be here. Oh, it's really great to connect with you again. And I just want to start by telling you, thank you so much for your work with Freeing Fire Cider. Thank you for saying thank you. (laughs) And we were so excited that we finished everything right before the pandemic hit, Mm. or else we might have been in federal court for another couple of years. So that that was a exciting journey that came to a, a close. And we have that book that tells people all about it if they want to know more. Yes. So that the book you're referring to is the Firesider book that mm-hmm. Rosemary Gladstar kind of oversaw and has a lot of community contributions, including for myself in it. And it is it's a wonderful community book overall. Yeah. I feel like when I read, you know, writing that book, I got like all the herbal sparkles. Like it just felt so good to hear about people practicing with fire cider and what herbalism means and all of that from just all over. So that was a really fun, fun contribution. Yeah. And what's really great about that lawsuit is that we were able to set a precedent in the entire cottage industry practice, not just herbalism, but you know, anybody who has a small business that's trying to use generic names of things, they've actually cited that case in a couple of different mm-hmm. lawsuits now to be able to keep people making generic things that are part of the people's history, whether it be herbalism or other cultural practices or foods, you know, like chicken soup. So, yeah, maybe, it, you know, some people, I'm sure a lot of people know all about fire cider and the controversy around it. For those who don't, is there like just a quick explanation you can give mm-hmm. of what happened? And, and then you kind of gave the result here. But yeah, what it, what was all this all about? Absolutely. Thanks for asking, too. And I think the easiest way to describe the, the journey of five years in a nutshell <laughs> is that myself and two other sisters of mine that are herbalists, sisters by another mother, but that was Mary Blue and Catherine Langelier. We were sued by a company for making a product called Fire Cider. And the company had said that they were the originators of this term and that they held a trademark for it. So we needed to stop making our fire cider. And we proved in a court of law, in federal court, 
that we actually have been making and selling fire cider for much longer since even before they were a company and that according to all our research rosemary gladstar is the first person to have come up with the recipe and copyrighted it back in the early 80s in some books she wrote and you'll probably come across it in old herb books because it's just a very popular remedy that most herbalists make in one form or another and most herb schools teach so it lit a fiery controversy as thousands of us were making and preparing it and many hundreds of us selling it. So it became a team effort to help free fire cider and me and my other two cohorts, the fire cider three went through federal court and we were really lucky to get a pro bono trial after getting sued where we were able to to get through the whole thing with just some contributions from the herbal community to keep us going. So all of us together won, and now we can kind of move on and, and kind of get into more, more, more things in, in the herbalism, who knows what's next, right? Licensure or something else, but we were able to protect a generic remedy. So yeah, that's so important because like you said, so many people, thousands of people were making this, hundreds of people selling it, but you three kind of got chosen, like you were kind of the rabble rousers and you were kind of outspoken and so you got kind of like, you got a lot of the heat put on you and a lot of that responsibility and, and it was no small thing to go through all that. So again, thank you very much. Well, thanks for diving into that with me. Now, I would love to even like kind of back up further and hear about your herbal path and what the things that have come in your life that have led you here to today. My journey into herbs started as being a community herbalist or community activist, I should say. So as an activist, I felt it was very important to protect the planet in one way or another, whether it be animals, plants, people that were marginalized. And I was an outspoken advocate in various ways, especially for the earth. So I would go out and do direct actions. And originally I thought I was going to be a criminal lawyer, getting my friends out of jail. And then I kept meeting these amazing herbalists in the middle of the forests. And so I had gone to school for studying botany and environmental resource management. So I was being groomed to be behind a desk, you know, putting together the last of the preserves for, you know, old growth trees or whatever. And instead I went and sat in old growth trees and stopped their destruction. And so out there, I kept meeting these amazing herbalists who knew all the plants that we would walk around and they would be able to just pop open a book and, and or or go point at something and say oh you can use that for this and eventually i came upon working with jasmine cleft who is an herbalist in bc at the wild seed school and greta de la montaigne grizz who runs the mash clinic which is a clinic to get first aid out to activists and others who are doing direct action work. So that's where I started. So my path isn't everybody's because I was a little bit more on the front lines. And so a lot of what I did was to start with creating first aid clinics at direct actions. We did a lot off grid and did a lot of herbal first aid support around the country in different capacities. I was a radical cheerleading herb medic who would run in to the WTO in Seattle with like a, you know, a little gas mask and go pull people out and give them homeopathic arnica, things like that. So I was always running into battle. My my family comes from being in the underground army and escaping from World War II and Nazi Germany and things like that. So I've had it in my my blood to always kind of be out there and do the right thing. So I ended up doing it as an herb medic or medical support, I should say. And then I ended up getting hooked on herbs. And before I knew it, I was volunteering at the American Botanical Council in Austin looking for a teacher because there weren't really any at that time. And I came upon everybody's private 
phone numbers then because there wasn't really a you know email that you could reach out to people as easily it was really everybody was still calling each other believe it or not people use <laughs> their phones <laughs> so i would call up rosemary gladstar i would call up christopher hobbs or i would call up all these people that i was interacting with our various activities at abc and i'd say who do you think i should study with and everybody kept saying michael moore and so I said, okay, I'm off to study with Michael Moore. And it's really interesting, you know, hearing how people today, when I, when I teach, they'll be like, oh, your classroom is so far away. You know, you have to, I have to drive like an hour or two to get there, you know, if you're, if I'm, they're studying, but I mean, back in the day, not too long ago, if you wanted to go to herb school there was no way to study online and you would pack up all your stuff, move across country to where that herbalist was and figure it out. So that's what me and several of my cohorts did is we just ended up being in this in Bisbee with Michael Moore. And then I continued to study around the country with various herbalists like Margie Flint and Matt Wood and even Paul Bergner and just about everybody you can think of because I was hooked. So I've been doing that ever since. And I, it's funny because people wonder, why are you still going on plant walks? I will always go on plant walks. I will always, I have so much to learn. I feel like there's going to always be something that piques my interest with everybody who's speaking about plants, as long as it's from a personal you know, place. If somebody's really using the plants, ugh, there's so much to learn. I don't know how I'll ever get past beginner level in this life. So. Um, I feel the same way. Oh, it was really great to hear your story, Nicole. I'm, I was at the WTO and I also got my start with direct actions and <laughs> knew several radical cheerleaders in Portland and everything. So that's great. Yeah. I had a different path than that. Like I wasn't introduced to herbs necessarily through that the way you were, but I got disillusioned actually, because I spent a lot of time like yelling at people on street corners because <laughs> I just didn't understand why people didn't care right about these like major issues affecting people and planet and places and and then it's through you know but then i went to a wilderness school and got connected with the plants and watched people transform because once they began you know created this relationship with the plants and place then they started to care and i just watched that transformation happen and i was like oh that is way more effective than yelling at people before they go into the gap store about sweatshops or whatever I was doing. <laughs> so there's so, a place yeah. for everything though. There's there is a place. I definitely, I 100% respect civil disobedience <laughs> and direct actions and they are definitely necessary just for my soul. It wasn't <laughs> like I was leading towards burnout, you know, so yeah, yeah. I had to head to the forest. Yeah. Well, thank you for that introduction and and that story and another highlight, of course, is hearing about how you call people on the phone. I just imagine that. <laughs> and they answered. Not yeah, just that they I answered. called, but they right. answered that's, their phone. That's you know? a very good yeah, distinction there. And one thing just to say, you know, this just makes me think, is that anyone who spent any time in wilderness by themselves, I think whenever you're having, you know, a, a question as to what you're doing here and why. I always tell people to go out into nature because that experience that I had out in being in the old growth and sitting up in, in the trees, it forever changed my, if there was any question about what I should be doing with the rest of my life, I, I knew then that no matter what I was going to fight to protect the plants and the wilderness for the rest of my life, because it was just getting mowed down everywhere around us. So I encourage folks, if they're ever questioning, why, why am I doing what, what am I doing? Just go out to a wild place and sit there by yourself. Give it a couple days out in the middle mm. of nowhere. Thank you. Very, very good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the plant you've chosen for us today is juniper, which is mm -hmm. first time it's been on the show. And I'm excited to hear from you about juniper. We can start with why you chose this plant out of all the plants. 
Well, if you saw how I was responding to this, I was saying, oh my gosh, I'm having such a hard time choosing. Do I choose this or that? And in the end, I really like to talk about plants that some people love to hate. <laughs> and in Central Texas specifically, juniper is a plant that a lot of people tend to have a lot of issues with. So I want to talk about the idea of weed crafting and celebrating our weedy medicines and how to approach them and, and how them being a problem. It's in permaculture. You always talk, talk about turning problem areas into solutions or things that are looked at as a problem into a solution. So I look at invasive and weedy plants and how can we turn them into solutions? And it's not invasive and weedy everywhere, but mm -hmm. in the bioregion that I called home for a very long time, it is, it is definitely considered a weed, even though it's native. Mm -hmm. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a, there's a lot of allergies that people like there's allergy season of juniper. Oh yeah. yeah. So in central Texas, where there isn't really a smooth transition of seasons because it's subtropical. So it just kind of goes from warm to coolish and back again to hot. Then it's generally about eight to 10 months of just hot is what everybody would consider it. But you have this coolish time. And right when the cool season starts at about November, December, when the weather starts to dip, a lot of the male cedars, because they're monoecious, they have two different houses. So there's male trees and female trees, and they're, they're cone producing. So this pollen will get spewed out from the cone. And that pollen is so prolific that you will see a yellow haze in the air. If you look out on a vista, you will just see this yellow kind of smoky haze and that's actually the pollen and a lot of people have some horrendous allergies from it so that's been something that people oftentimes will say as to why they don't like juniper that's one of the reasons and why do you think we should love fit juniper then <laughs> well no you know and i'll say another thing that juniper has in central texas at least and this is again i wanted to state bioregionally, you know, each bioregion is going to have its own distribution of juniperous species and juniperous is the genus, but you'll have Virginiana, Aceae, Communis, there's all the di these different species. And some of them even only grow in like low elevation areas in the West, say a thousand, 2000, maybe even 3000 feet. But in central Texas, you'll have some species that are just basically blanketing the western half of the state, including some parts of central Texas. And people have found this love-hate relationship because they're often given this reputation of sucking up the groundwater and we should just cut them all down and, you know, there shouldn't be here. Some ecologists even argue that they are not native to central Texas and some regions, but there's a lot of ecologists arguing back and forth. But what I found interesting from living on land and, and what you'll find a good herbalist is a, is very good at observing both people and plants, right? So whether it's, you know, some people choose to be more botanically driven and some people more human driven at being keen observers. But when I, I have this botanical sanctuary and when you walk it, you'll see that the junipers have fallen in some places from drought. And I was always taught that the old junipers have really long tap roots and they're just sucking up all this water. But on the property that I was stewarding or am stewarding, when the cedar falls over, it has a very shallow root system. So then I started wondering, I'm like, is it really the scourge of this area? What is going on here? So there's a lot of questions about whether or not it's a protective plant in various ways for not just holding soil in place, but 
you know, in the desert Southwest and through central Texas, we get really, really hot, hot, hot summers. So you get these shrubby little trees that are junipers and they're evergreens. And so they provide this little habitat for endangered birds and just birds in general and other critters to go and kind of hide in. So ecologically, we also wonder about, or a lot of us will wonder about, you know, are they a problem or are they really helpful? And how can we, again, turn these problem areas into solutions too? So when I think about wildcrafting, and I wanted to bring it up too, because a lot of people, there's a new not new, but there's been a push for foraging for the past decade or so, like this big, I've always been asked by different foraging groups to either be on podcasts or, you know, symposiums or all of these things. Let's forage, let's forage. I personally feel that the time is over for wide scale foraging. I do not teach it anymore. I do not think it is a sustainable practice for thousands and thousands of people to be learning something on the internet briefly and then walking out into nature and grabbing what they wish when they feel like it. I've even seen people write that it's more sustainable because it's less of a carbon footprint, footprint. but I tend to disagree with that because unless it's done with a bigger vision, you don't know about your own personal impact in an area. And since I come to this from this training of being an ecologist, I'm kind of looking at a bigger picture of my impact in the wild. So, you know, to me, loving juniper isn't just going out and harvesting it for medicine, but it's questioning its role in the environment and and how to protect it. And if we do need to clear out some juniper from an area, then how do we clear it out to help the older ones survive? Maybe we have to clear out the younger ones. And if we clear out the younger ones, then maybe we use them for medicine. So that's where, to me, ecology and herbalism come together and something I've been coining, weed crafting, which is going out and foraging the weeds. And so if juniper is a weed in your area and people are going to clear it out, then for sure that and whatever other weeds people are deciding to clear out of land could possibly be a great solution for creating wild medicine that isn't just something on the and then walking out into a a park and deciding to grab something. Because I've seen that happen quite a bit where in some bioregions like nettles is very prolific, right? But in its weedy, you could look at nettles as a weedy plant like juniper in some reason regions. And I, I still have a really big, I take issue with people walking into parks and just taking nettles out of the park without thinking about its role and what it's doing in that park. And, and that we're not supposed to be taking anything from parks. That's kind of the law. And it's so that some people can just enjoy the park and not just see people pulling stuff out. So whether it's junipers or any other plant, I think it's important to really think about, critically think about, which our government has kind of erased from our school system is critical thinking skills. So I think really critically evaluating what you're doing with plants before you touch them and why is essential to consider before you ever reach for a juniper leaf. And so for me, if somebody's clearing their land and they say, hey, I'm about to uproot a bunch of juniper, then I call my students, I call people, I say, who who needs juniper medicine? This rancher over there is about to uproot a bunch. So I love juniper because it is weedy. And I, who is your, who am European, am also weedy and invasive. So I don't think that all of us weedy invasives need to be just eradicated, but we definitely need to be watched and somewhat managed more than plants and and people that are of this place. And juniper, whether or not it is native, is still in, you know, 
in some circles a question in some bioregions, but it is a plant that you can see all over the world. It's a, it's a shrubby tree. I say shrubby tree because in botanical language, the difference between a tree and a shrub, do you know what it is, Rosalie? Is it just the size? It's the trunk. So trunk officially a tree has a trunk, but okay. a shrub would have multiple trunks. But in Texas and other hot regions, we get a bunch of what should be trees that end up being shrubby because they're trying to protect themselves from the sun and they get they get stunted and create multiple limbs. So it's kind of like a play on, you know, you're not there's botanically there are two different things, but in some bioregions, a shrubby tree is definitely something that you will come upon. So why do I love it? There are so many reasons I love it, but I'm starting with the ecology and the wild crafting and the foraging aspect just for people to think about before I get into all of its wonderful uses. So I think that we all should spend more time reflecting and pondering before running out and jumping on a plant and going, oh my gosh, I found this. So therefore I need to harvest it. I just heard about this on this. So therefore I need to make medicine out of it. Just because you know the the power is the is is knowing that you can do it, but you don't have to do it just because you know how to do it. Yeah, and there's also this there's such a deeper connection and reverence when we're able to connect to that deeper ecology and be a part of the system and not just taking from the system. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that that beautiful lead into all of that. Yeah. And it's, I always say that it's, it's like a grocery store. So you can't just walk into the grocery store and take whatever you want, you know, like even in a grocery store, you you still have to exchange something. And in nature, we might not be exchanging money, but we need to exchange something back and really think about what our role is right now as plant people who are plant enthusiasts that want to fall in love with plants that want to be there for the plants. How do we, how do we step up for them in a real meaningful way right now? So that doesn't mean you have to go climb up in a juniper all the time to stop them from mowing it down, but it it does mean that you have to think about what your role is with it. So for me, I think about my personal experience with juniper as a as a plant in general before I think about how I take it internally. So I think about when you walk up to a juniper tree, and I hope anyone who has a juniper, sometimes called cedar, let's start there. It's called cedar a lot of times, but it's not really a cedar. There's three plants in opposite sides of North America, Turtle Island that are called cedar that are different. And they have some of the same properties and some of the same energetics, but they're very different plants with different indications, even for use. So juniper is sometimes called cedar, but its Latin name is juniperus, and then it'll have a you know species. Then there's cedrus, and then there's also thuja that are all called cedar, but they are not the same plant. So make sure you know what you're talking about when I'm when I'm or what you're using when I'm discussing this plant. So I am talking about the juniper plant, which is again, a cone bearing, monoecious and evergreen shrub or tree that will grow all over the desert, Southwest, West, up up into the East Coast too, in some places, so you'll see it everywhere. So if you have a cedar, you might, I want you to walk up to it and just see how you feel. But my, my first feeling when I walk up to a juniper is that of protection. And if you look at its spiritual significance, a lot of times juniper was looked at that way in different cultures, because it's also found in different countries. And some of those different cultures have used it as a They'll burn the leaves for and fumigate and use it to kind of protect from evil spirits or what we could look at also as pathogens and other things. So you'll find that it was often used as a sort of incense and it definitely has that protective feel. So I've oftentimes when I'm camping, I'll camp underneath the cedar and you'll, you'll find that it's got this little 
area that nothing else grows because it's very tannic, it has a lot of tannins and it has a lot of essential oils. So that makes it really volatile oil. So it makes it really hard for other plants to grow underneath it. So it's a great place to camp. And then you get the smell of juniper everywhere as you, as you are underneath it. And there's nothing like the smell of it right at sunset. If you're walking along a Creek with juniper smell in the air, there's this just beautiful smell that just makes me sigh every time I think of it. So it, it's something to me that's very motherly, very protective. A lot of plants can be for people. So it's not unlikely that you will hear that from other people, from other, for other plants, like, oh, that plant's like a mother, you know? Well, it's because, you know, the plants take care of us for thousands of years. Our DNA and their DNA, we're one. We've been recycling DNA back and forth as we breathe out, they breathe in, as they breathe out, we breathe in. So there's this really intimate relationship that we've had with the plant. So of course, a lot of us are going to say it's like being around a mom. So, so juniper is this little protective fortress. I feel like really kind of stunted a lot of times for plants, animals, and people. And we can use like, if any of the boughs fall on the ground, or you have a juniper tree that's fallen over, then you can take the the leaves and we actually wrap them up and make little incense sticks out of them in certain bioregions and we'll use it to just kind of purify an area. So that's the first way that I think of loving juniper is in its purification, its virtues of being purifying and protecting. And it's oftentimes attributed to the sun, like that the sun has dominion over it because it is an evergreen. And really a lot of evergreens are given that in Greek medicine and Greek astrology, medical astrology. So it's a plant of the sun, which is thought of as being brightening and opening and purifying a lot of the plants that are given dominion of the sun. And so it's also thought of as being heating and drying because when you take it, have you ever taken it? Like, do you drink a lot of juniper? Okay. So how do you feel when you drink it? It's definitely has that. I mean, the first thing is that pungent aromatics that are very awakening. Yeah. So you drink it, you get this really bright flavor. It's almost piney, but then there's this deep dank kind of feel to it too. And it, it's it, a lot of aromatics are thought of, of being warming and drying. So this plant, because it's so pro, the aromatics are so prolific, you'll get this heating sensation that will then cause you to sweat a little bit. So this is a thought of as a diaphoretic when you drink it. And then it also has a diuretic effect. So that heating and warming aromatic will push fluid through the body, both through the skin and into the kidneys. And that's where a lot of its medicinal aspects and medicinal components are really explored through the old texts. So I was really lucky. I have a lot of old texts like the Eclectic Materia Medica here and King's Dispensatory and the Physiomedical Dispensatory or Dispensatory. And a lot of times the way that that the old eclectic docs described this plant as being both relaxant and stimulating. And that's always so confusing. I'm sure if you had Jim McDonald on here, which I saw, he's always talking about how can something be both relaxing and stimulating? And then he always says, you know, I loved his, the way that he describes it is you take your hands and you go like this with your hair and it's really stimulating and then you feel relaxed. And so I think that was such a great way to describe how something can be both a relaxant and a stimulant at the same time. So these plants are stirring things up. It's a blood mover. It's warm. It's getting your blood moving. It's getting your, your body to sweat a little bit. It's getting the fluids moving out. And then that causes this kind of relaxing effect as well. And some of the volatile oils are actually thought to also be somewhat relaxing to the ureter and the kidneys as well, a little bit antispasmodic there, but it's really that warming sensation that creates that 
action in the body and, and stimulates and then relaxes. So a lot of times you'll see the old eclectic docs and physiomedicalist docs have used this for kidney issues, like whether it was mucus in the kidneys or some blood in the urine, things like that. Now for beginning herbalists, if you have mucus in your, in your urine or blood, you need to go get checked out by a professional first. Please don't just like immediately grab a plant that somebody says might be good for it. That's always what's good for this. Well, there could be a lot going on. And if you don't know what's going on in your kidneys and it's a significant infection, it can be something that's life-threatening when it has to do with your kidneys. So it's really good to get evaluated before you just drink something. Cause a lot of times to be really clear, like you could drink something that has high aromatics like juniper and you're drinking it and you're like, Oh, things are getting better. I don't have an issue anymore. But if you don't get rid of it completely, that infection can come back further up in the kidneys. So you have to really make sure that you know how to address if it is an infection. So while this plant is effective against urinary tract and kidney infections, I think you have to keep that in mind because a lot of us are like, I don't need to go to the doctor. And then there's certain times like teeth infections and urinary, you just want to get checked out, make sure you know what it is. So as far as juniper goes, though, I have used it successfully with clients as a clinical practitioner and treated urinary tract infections and been able to heal them and resolve them. And you said you oftentimes like to know like what I would combine it with, right? So, you know, when I think about a urinary tract formula that uses juniper, I oftentimes will use the leaf. I don't really use the berries a lot because they're almost too strong. They're volatile oils, but I would say I'm not always a leaf person. I sometimes do have some berries. I do. I like berry glycerate a lot. I like the leaf in tincture form. And then I'll, I'll put the juniper together with say net like nettles, nettles and juniper is nice, but also I use a plant that's not often used called Eisenhardia. Eisenhardia Texana is a kidney wood, which is Eisenhardia polystachyma is used a lot in Mexico. If you look in Mexican Materia Medicas, Eisenhardia polystachyma is really, it's, it's called Palo Azul and it's something commonly used for urinary tract issues. So we have in the central Texas plant known as Eisenhardia Texana. And there's also one growing in Ajo, New Mexico. So there was some desert Southwest herbalists that were also using it for a while for urinary tract infections. Now, the one from Mexico turns blue and then orange and then yellow in water. And ours doesn't do that, unfortunately. I was wow. so excited to see it change colors, but no, doesn't do that. But I have used juniper in, in combination with this Eisenhardia. And then, of course, because if there's an infection, it's often inflamed. So I like to put things that are mucilaginous in a formula, too, that will soothe the urinary tract. So that would include anything like licorice could be something that I used or even some corn silk or some marshmallow. So sometimes when I'm building a formula, I'm trying, I think of the actions that I want to see happen. Like what are they dealing with? What are they complaining about? Pain, mucus in the urine, maybe there's, you know, inflammation and spasming. And then I build a formula that's an action-based formula, but then clinical herbalists like me would then adjust it to the person's constitution and then the herbs that are in there and those herbs qualities too. So if somebody was a little hotter or drier, you would then adjust stuff if you were going to give it to them long-term so it didn't throw them off. And, you know, most of these first aid remedies, you don't need to do long-term. They should be used short-term till you do a lot of it short-term and then you're not using it anymore. So those kinds of things for infections, say, are not going to be something that I worry as much about constitution with because we're just trying to clear out an infection. And there's reasons that somebody would do herbs instead of drugs, but I won't get into that. 
Sometimes you'll do drugs. Sometimes you'll do herbs. If you're doing herbs, you can do a formula with juniper that is effective if you're seeing the right practitioner to guide you through that. On your own, I just don't recommend dealing with kidney or urinary tract infections all by yourself as a newbie. I think that's a dangerous place to go. And you can, you can disagree with me though, because a lot of herbalists are going to be like, I can do it. I don't need you telling me what I can and can't. <laughs> so, so that's a, you know, it's, it's got a lot of affinity to the urinary tract and kidneys internally. And then externally, if we're ready to go there, unless you yeah. have about the internal. No, no, let's go external. Yeah. So, oh, and a contraindication to keep in mind is that there's a lot of controversy over whether or not the oils in juniper are too harsh for the kidneys. So I was always taught like by my teacher, Michael Moore, that if somebody has weak kidneys, be really careful when giving them juniper because it can irritate greatly. And that could be an elder, could be something who gets re, someone who gets reoccurrent kidney infections, maybe that has really weak kidneys. Maybe it's somebody who has other diseases or, or chronic in, infections that are related to the kidneys. So you want to be careful about, again, who you're giving that to. That's a little contraindication there. So as far as externally, that's my favorite way of using juniper. I do use juniper internally, but not as much as I use it externally. And this is how I've gotten people who hate juniper to love juniper. Because for 15 years, I worked as a body worker as well. So I got to make my own herbal remedies for my clients. And one of the things I would make is a juniper oil and the juniper oil is smells so good and it's a rubefacient. And for those of you that don't know that term rubefacient, rubefacient means that it reddens the area. So because I was mentioning that it's a warming plant, when you put this warming plant on your skin, you'll see that the oil can cause a little reddening because it's drawing all the blood. It's a blood mover. It's getting the circulation going. So in some different heritages, or I should say different types of herbal medicine coming from different parts of the world, for example, in Mexico and some of the, some of the countries surrounding Mexico in Central America, juniper has been used as a aches and pains, arthritis remedy a lot. And so that's something that I've I started using it a lot for since it was everywhere and I was a body worker. I was like, why am I going to buy anything from and put essential oils and essential oils talk about unsustainable, you know, essential oil industry, not sustainable, not okay to be grabbing anything from there. Sorry. That's my opinion. I'm going to stick with it. And yes, you can get essential oil of juniper, but why would you, if it's growing all around you and people are sh cutting it down because they don't like it. So the leaves, especially and or berries, even the wood and the wood is beautiful. I've, I mean, we've cut it up and used it in different projects and it's got this beautiful red and yellow. It's a soft wood. So you can't really do much that, except make it, put it on things to make it look pretty, but it smells great. It's, it's a bug repellent too. So, you know, it's one of those things has so many different uses, but the leaves and the berries you can put into an oil and it extracts out all the volatile oils extract out into that oil. So it's not necessary to buy essential oil and you can go ahead and use it topically. But what I tend to do is most, most of these infused oils will be at a one to five ratio. But if you have sensitive skin and you tend to be somebody who reacts really strongly from plants, then I would recommend even doing it at more like a one to 10 or just adding twice as much oil to it so that it doesn't affect you as strongly. Cause it's, it can be a little alarming if you have sensitive skin and you put something on, it gets bright red. So most people it doesn't do that with, but a few people it can, it can be a little alarming with, but you make this nice herbal oil. And then especially in the winters, you can cover yourself up with it. You smell delicious 
and it gets your bot, your blood pumping. It's really good for cold arthritis. So anybody who tends to have arthritis that's degenerative, a joint wearing down, then that's going to be something you can use. I don't really use it on rheumatoid arthritis because that's a different type. That's a hot inflammatory type of arthritis. So I like to use it more for cold conditions, cold arthritis, cold muscles that are cold and cramping, massaging it into the muscles will help you to have a lot of pain relief and relaxation in the body. Sometimes I'll just do a bath with it. So I'll just stick it into a little bath baggie and then even in our vinegar of the four thieves, when we made it right when COVID started, we put a lot of juniper in there because again, it's thought of as this purification to the air. So you could do it in a steam to purify the air. You could do it in a bath and then breathe that steam in. And gosh, there's so many things about it. I love and topically it's also antifungal. So if you look at old remedies, there was a pomade of juniper made, I think in the 1800s to the early 1900s. And it was a specific for fungal infections in most pharmacy shelves, but it had an ingredient in there that was a little toxic. So I think they just took it off the shelf, but I started making it for fungal infections and it's very, very effective. You'll see it immediately. But I, some fungal infections, I'd rather do a spray of the juniper than oil because they can just cause more itchiness if, depending on the, the fungal infection. But it's something to, to try if you tend to be somebody who has fungal infections or you know somebody with fungal infections. So that's another thing because of it, the aromatics are also going to be antimicrobial, right? So that's that purification and putting it into the air or the bath or the skin, you're going to be killing different pathogens that could be affecting you. So, so many ways to love juniper. So many ways. I'm really excited about the juniper infused oil recipe that you shared with us. And that was a great tip on making it less strong if necessary. The recipe you gave us is a one to five. And for anyone interested in that recipe, you can download your free juniper infused oil recipe card at the show notes, which is at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to make some juniper infused oil now because that sounds <laughs> lovely for so many different reasons. Yeah. And to be clear too about the, you know, what, one of the things I practice is bioregional herbalism, which means what can we use in our bioregion rather than go outside and go across the world or across the country to get something. So if juniper doesn't grow in your area, what can we use instead of juniper? Where a lot of times you can use a lot of different evergreens interchangeably for this warming oil, especially mm -hmm. if it's just to kind of warm the joints and even to purify the aromatics in several different species of evergreens, like from pine to cypress to thuja, you know, placata to other types of evergreen trees have these warming aromatic oils that, especially if you're, uh, my favorite way to gather these if you want to be really sustainable about your gathering is after a windstorm, you know, you're in the forests, you're on a walk and there's been a big windstorm and there's been stuff that's been blown down. That is a really nice way to gather and not be taking from live plants, but get, but doing things with what's been left to become, you know, fire, fire, <laughs> fire fuel. So, yeah. I really love the all of that you're bringing in in terms of the ecology, and it, I know it's just something that's through and through with you. Your book, Herbcraft, here. Yeah, I love. This is chapter one. How you get started here, learning to listen to earth rhythms, connecting to cycles and seasons. That's chapter one, and then the first the first headline is how to begin finding your sit spot, which I also just love so much. My main course. That's how we start too, is a sit spot because as yep. herbalists, that's what we're about is finding our place rerouted back in to the world around us. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think that one of the ways to be in balance, if we think about everything as, you know, the yin and the yang and what goes up must come down and all that is that we're in a culture that's go, 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 hot, 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 burn, burn, burn. 
And one of the ways to balance yourself is to take yourself out of that culture, right? And and say, wait a minute, do I really need to speed forward? Do I really need to burn, burn, burn? Can I not just be more reflective? And so as an herbalist, I think that part of what we teach as a lot of us herbalists who are practical and and using plants and, and, and learning about them is we understand that our place in nature doesn't always have to be active. It can be passive. It can be receiving. It's much more of a feminine, feminist way of acting with plants is to learn how to be quiet with them and not always be trying to do something to them or use them. Maybe we just need to be quiet and listen for a change, you know, because that's, that's what nature teaches, I think. So thank you for bringing up that book. That book is actually goes along with my introductory course. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do during the pandemic? Except write a book now because I can't go out anywhere. So now everyone's like, when are you going to update stuff? I'm like, next pandemic, I'll be updating. (laughs) Now I'm back out in the gardens and just spending a lot of time outside with plants Mm -hmm. because I felt like I did so much for so long on the computer over the past few years. So it's again, having that balance and not I think that, you know, as people listen to this and they're getting into herbalism, there's this push. If you look at social media, there's an illusion that you have this, that you need to work really hard to be seen and that you have to do all this extra to to be a good herbalist. And I think it's all an illusion and that really a lot of us herbalists that are really successful and great, you're never going to see us on the, on the internet. Some people are, some people, there's a, there's a definitely a, there's a small contingent of, or a contingent, I should say, of people on there, but you can be very successful and very, and successful, not just monetarily, but just a really good herbalist by just being outside with the plants. You don't have to feel that you have to do things the way everybody else is doing them. So I really want to, you know, keep, have people keep that in mind. You don't have to make a business off of it. I know there's a big push right now. How do you get, how do you build your business off of it? Are you going to be happy building a business off herbalism? You don't have to build a business off herbalism. You can be a successful and amazing herbalist, just enjoying the plants and Mm -hmm. spending time with them. Uh, So I just also want to put that out there because I see a lot of entrepreneurial this and, you know, building your business. We don't have to make commodify everything. That was our big push when we went and freed Firesider is that Firesider doesn't have to be a commodity. It doesn't have all the herbal commons is for all of us. The, The, you know, and it's for all of us to protect as well, whether it's the plants or the remedies or each other. It's up to us how we're going to bring the future forward as herbalists. How do we want to see this? Because it's not licensed right now to be an herbalist. You don't have to be licensed. And if we're going to keep it that way, then we get to explore how we want to see herbalists be defined right now. That's we're really lucky. There's a lot of countries that it's you don't get to do this. You don't get to be call yourself an herbalist and then just go sit in the wild for a while. You have to <laughs> license, you know, to call yourself. So here, I, I think we should really celebrate that we get to define how and how we want to be with the plants right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, some people will be called to make it like they're calling in life and make a living from it. And yep. I love what you said, because I think they're a tr- I think a tremendous level of, success that people can have with herbs is simply inviting the plants into their life turning to them again and again like that is a big success you know being able to grow your own medicine and then use that medicine for a sore throat that then is then relieved then you didn't have to go buy an artificial syrup at the store like that is a huge success yes so i really appreciate that you brought that into it is that we don't have to commodify it like you said Absolutely. And and I always get, you know, people get overwhelmed these days a lot. Like a lot of my students will get really overwhelmed about what they should be doing and how, if, are they doing the right thing? And I always go tell them to, or I tell them to go watch Juliet DeBarkley Levy, that the full documentary is on YouTube. You can go watch it for free. And she's this amazing herbalist 
and she recently passed, you know, not that long ago. So she was an animal herbalist. She got sick of people, went and lived on an island in Greece with her dogs and people would come to her and she would just use one plant at a time. And she would do it on really serious things like gangrene, you know, like, and it, she was amazing, did so much. You can still get her books. And she's who really inspires me along with Michael Moore and other people like Rosemary Gladstar, who was our cheerleader all through the Firesider trials. She's basically a fairy incarnate. And <laughs> I think about them because what really stands out, I think one of the reasons that we all fell in love with people like them is they just, they just gave it all away and it makes it feel so good to receive things that are freely given and not, you know, not, you know, held on to as much. Our society is all about holding things like my precious, you know, this is my precious. But I think that Rosemary, Juliet, Michael were all people who are all, are all people who freely gave as much as they could of the plants to other people because they found so much joy in it. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of it is, is bringing, letting your joy with plants, like whether it's a weed like juniper or nettles or whatever it is, just bringing your joy out to the world with it. So people get excited about it too. So they can, they can start to catch the bug that I caught and other people caught and Rosalie and everybody, like once you catch it, you're hooked and that's not a bad thing to be hooked to, you know, like that's, that's it. And I will tell you for the rest of my life and I will always let the plants guide me first, because as long as I put my, faith in the plants, they will never steer me wrong. It, it could be so many other things going wrong in my life, but as long as I say, okay, whatever the plants want, I do. And then I watch and whatever seems to be the right path with the plants, I follow it. And it's always led me to beautiful places. So Mm -hmm. that just following your heart with everything. And that's something Karen Sanders always talks about too, is like making sure and checking in with your heart with herbs. And I think that's some of the greats have, have kept that going with me because the world can get really rough, especially with life. I was talking about that with you earlier. Like mm -hmm. it can sometimes feel a little like what I have to live and all this other stuff is happening and there's a pandemic and then there's a kid that's just been born. And then there's, a, you know, all these things that, that keep happening, but you know, herbalism to me, lifestyle herbalism is it helps you stay rooted and balanced while everything goes crazy. Cause during the pandemic, I, I think that a lot of us were like, oh, we get to go outside more by ourselves and take more long walks and slow down. Okay. You know, there's a lot of us that, that for a while it was pretty, pretty nice. And now as the world is sped back up again, I think some of us are like, oh, I really like that quiet time. But I think it's also good to connect with people again too. So that's the beautiful thing about herbalists is being that bridge between nature like the plants and people and and just keeping the plants flowing back and forth between the wilderness and and whatever this is that we're living in the, the matrix <laughs> oh nicole i'd love to hear how the plants are leading you right now and what projects uh -huh. you have going on Oh, that's a lot. So I am really excited to explore right now. You know, it's, I'm exploring how to bring ecology and herbalism and permaculture all together. And so I've been playing around with some different food forest projects and bringing in some of our Herbalists Without Borders work into food forests and creating community pantries there. So that's actually something that I'm exploring in different parts of the country. I will be going to a couple of different symposium and like I'll be at the IHS this year, which is really fun to reconnect with people there and teach there. And I'm not even sure exactly what I'm going to teach. I have a few things in mind. And then at the AHG symposium, I'll be there. We in Texas, we still, we're in our 20th year wildflower school. So I've been having a lot of fun bringing people into the magic and mysteries of all of the virtues of bioregionalism in central Texas and then exploring somewhat in my 
other home in Seattle I with people there bringing the magic and mystery of plants to people there. So I'm kind of all over the place, but I always have been. I kind of just go where, wherever the herbs are. So right now we are about to go into spring and I'm growing so many plants mm -hmm. and, and it's going to be so much fun because I'm learning propagation. This year is my year to learn propagation in a big way. So um, as far as that goes, you can learn more. Like my books tell you a lot about that. So I, I found that I used to sell a lot of products. People are always like, where can I get your products? Eh, it was too hard to do all that. So I'm on a hiatus from, from selling products. I did it for a long time, but I just choose to spend time now trying to be in nature with people. This is my year to be away from the, the matrix, as I called it, and more in outdoor activities with people. So if you follow some of my Instagram happenings, then it might show you that, that I'm doing a plant walk in Austin, or I'm doing a plant walk in Seattle, or I'm doing a plant walk in the Pacific Northwest somewhere else, who knows, but I, I'll be, I'm just kind of popping myself up here and there, kind of getting back into a new flow, so to hmm. say. Yeah, well, you're really getting out there. It is definitely all across the country. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like we're in a new flow. Like I used to spend, you know, our our teaching has changed where I used to do everything in person and now it's a hybrid program. Like we do a lot of things hybrid style. So that allows me to work with people in new ways in person. So I can kind of like, I'm actually thinking about doing more retreat focused work with people to just sit with them in nature and work with them that way. So we'll see where it all goes. I'm in the, I feel like this is the transition year for me where I'm just kind of reconnecting with people I haven't been able to see in a long time and still teaching, always teaching, always learning and trying to stay honest with the plants, make sure I'm out there. You know, Michael Moore said, a good herbalist really needs to have dirty fingers. And I've been definitely keeping my fingers pretty dirty this year. So I feel like that would be a good way to gauge how I'm doing. <laughs> <herbalist>. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I look forward to hearing how all of that unfolds. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And before we go, I'd love to ask you the last question I'm asking everybody in season sure. eight, which yeah. is what has been your most important herbal mistake? So I think my most important herbal mistake was trying to compare myself to other people and what they were doing, because mm -hmm. you're never going to do things like other people. And I think all that does is cause you stress. And, you know, I think that, that I don't know if it was a mistake though, because I feel like every mistake there's like a reason for it. Like you'll, and I don't know if I've ever really made a mistake that way. I'd say that that was a lesson I learned. I'd say maybe a mistake that I made that really sticks out to me was the time I wildcraft, wildcrafted something and then I didn't have time to process it. And it was this wild plant that I spent all day with and then I didn't process it in time and it rotted. And I was like, Oh, I will never do that again. I will never waste plant medicine again. And I think that's another reason I, I bring that up because people are worried about making mistakes. And I love that you asked that question because we all make them all the time. And it's better to take that risk and make a mistake like that, because that's how you become a better herbalist. So I love that you're asking that. I think that more, I wouldn't say the first one, I was more like a lesson, like don't try to do what other people are doing, be yourself. And then the second would be, you know, be really intentional about what you take from the plant world and what you have time to take from the plant world, and what you're going to do with it. So. Yeah, those are two very important mistakes or lessons. So thank you so much for sharing <laughs> yeah. them. And thank you so much for generously spending your time with us and sharing so much wisdom that included juniper and then went so far beyond as well so. <laughs> sorry i get i get all oh, perfect. perfect yeah <laughs> i know i know people love to hear it all so i really appreciate you sharing it all and just sharing from your heart and yeah truly sharing wisdom so thank you so much nicole thank you thanks for being here 
Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your beautifully illustrated recipe card and get a transcript of this show. There you'll also be able to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. You can also visit Nicole directly at wildflowerschool.com. If you'd like more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. It takes an herbal village to make it all happen, including you. Thank you so much for your support through your comments, your reviews, your ratings. I read every review that comes in because they're like a little herbal love letter that brightens my day. Like this one. I have been a student taking online coursework authored by Rosalie for several years now. This podcast does not disappoint in matching the quality I'm used to from this amazing teacher. Humble, knowledgeable, and so willing to share all of her deep knowledge with the rest of us. Subscribe. You won't be sorry. Do you love this podcast? If you leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts, I may be reading your herbal love letter on the show next. Okay, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means get a gold star and this herbal tidbit. Well, years ago, my husband and I were traveling through my home state of Utah and we were camping along the way. Well, one night we camped in this epic location with the red rocks of southern Utah just towering above us. It was so gorgeous. Until dusk came and along with it, a horde of mosquitoes. Something to know about me is that mosquitoes love me and... I don't like most bug sprays. Of course, I don't like the toxic ones, but even the natural ones with citronella are a bit much for me. And we didn't have anything with us anyway, but we were surrounded by juniper. So we carefully harvested some and we started feeding it to the fire and we drenched ourselves in the aromatic smoke that came from the fire and it worked great. So now, We had an epic camping spot that smelled like the medicine of juniper.